If you were to poll the average evangelical Christian as to the purpose of the church, I believe that most would answer that question by pointing to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that makes a great deal of sense. After all, a major component of what it means to be evangelical is that we believe in evangelism. And if you would answer the question, what is the purpose of the church in this particular way, you would not be wrong. Disciple-making is the church's mission in the world. But if Jesus says first and foremost to his church, go and make disciples, we need to be absolutely clear on what that means. What is the goal? What is a disciple? Because how we define the word disciple has a major impact upon how we go about making them. For example, if we understand the word disciple to be essentially synonymous with the word convert, then we will spend all of our time and our energy and our focus trying to get people to profess faith in Christ and to follow Him in baptism, that is to make converts of Jesus. But that begs the question of what then? What happens after they're baptized, after their profession of faith? I guess we're left to say, well, that's just bonus. Discipleship comes after baptism, and it's just, it's just added on to the end of what it means to be a Christian. Whatever it is, Whatever comes after baptism, it clearly isn't disciple-making. But is that what Jesus meant when he commissioned his church to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations? Well, clearly not, because in the Great Commission, Jesus continues on after saying, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, to to command us to teach them to observe all that he he has commanded us. Therefore, teaching is an essential component of disciple-making. Well, that begs the question of how long does it take to teach someone all that Christ has commanded? And when do you know that you've achieved it? When do you know that you have, in fact, made a disciple? If disciple-making involves baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. More to the point, how do you know whether you are a disciple yourself? Well, I'm convinced that for the last several generations at least, we've gotten this issue of disciple-making largely wrong. We have narrowed the definition of a disciple to a person who has at some point in their life made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But that is not the biblical definition of a disciple. A biblical disciple, the definition of a biblical disciple is far broader. 
Biblical discipleship is viewed through a wide-angle lens, not a narrow moment-in-time snapshot. In the New Testament, discipleship, disciple-making, encompasses not just the moment of conversion, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it encompasses the rest of the entirety of the Christian life teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Therefore, disciple-making is not merely the making of converts, it's the making of lifelong Christians. It's not merely the making of momentary decisions for Christ, it is the making of lifelong disciples of Christ. And this is the very reason, this broad, lifelong definition of discipleship, which I believe is the biblical definition of discipleship, that's the very reason why at First Baptist Nixa, we don't draw a hard and fast line between evangelism and discipleship. As if evangelism is what we do with lost people and discipleship is what we do with saved people. That distinction is not biblical. In other words, both evangelism and discipleship, if we're going to define them in those ways, both evangelizing unsaved people and teaching saved people belong to the one biblical heading of discipleship and disciple-making, then that that changes the way we view this process. In other words, our goal is not merely to get people saved and baptized. Our goal is to present as many people as possible complete in Christ on the day when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And that is a lifelong process that requires a strong, healthy church, wise and godly pastoral leadership, and the steady day-by-day, week-by-week intake of the Word of God applied in the power of the Holy Spirit. So my aim this morning, in this morning's text, is to build into your minds and build into the DNA of this church a biblical definition of a disciple, and to do so by looking at two passages from Mark chapter 3 which speak directly to this topic. First, the account of the great crowd which clamored for Jesus in verses 7 to 12. And secondly, the account of Jesus' calling of the 12 apostles in verses 13 to 19. We're going to walk through those two passages and we're going to make observations along the way as to what each has to teach us about biblical discipleship. Then we'll draw it all together to a conclusion and I'll give you what I believe to be a biblical definition of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's begin in Mark 3, 7. Mark 3.7 describes Jesus' ministry at the height of his popularity. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. I think the scope of Jesus' popularity is staggering. Mark tells us that not only from Galilee, which has been the epicenter of his ministry up to this point, but the word had spread throughout all of the region of Judea, even down to Jerusalem, even as far away as Idumea, which is ancient Edom, south and east of Israel, over to the regions beyond the Jordan to the east, and then even as far away as Tyre and Sidon on the western edge of Israel on the Mediterranean coast. That is a huge realm of influence that Jesus wields in the first half of his earthly ministry. What was it then about Jesus that attracted the attention of so diverse and far-reaching a crowd? What was it about him? Well, Mark insinuates that it was his power to heal, which is a very important point to which we'll return momentarily. At any rate, the sick and the suffering multitudes are so overwhelming and so unruly that Jesus had to have a small boat ready to take him away from the shoreline if the massive crowds began to press in upon him and begin to crush him. Even the demon-possessed, Mark says, are pressing in on him. It's a chaotic scene. Listen as Kent Hughes describes it. He says, putting it all together, the ill, the feverish, and the crippled were pushing and grabbing at Jesus and falling over him. The demonized were malevolently sizing him up and were howling his name in furtive combat. The jaundiced Pharisees were watching his every move, waiting for their chance. I mean, you can cut the tension with a knife in this scene in Mark 3, 7 to 12. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that verses 7 to 12 do not describe authentic biblical discipleship. Even though Mark says it was a great crowd that, and here's a key word, followed Jesus. I'm suggesting to you that this crowd, by and large, are not disciples. They're not believers. They're not saved. Now, the very next passage, I think, gives us a much different description of Jesus' calling of the twelve in verses 13 to 19 and provides for us a much different picture of what a biblical disciple is. So beginning in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name of Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name of Boanerges. James, the son of Zebedee, I have that in there twice. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, it's in these last verses, verses 13 to 19, that we get a true picture of authentic biblical discipleship. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to put these two passages together, 7 to 12, which I think view inauthentic discipleship superficial discipleship, and we're going to compare it against the verses 13 and 19, which I think give us a depiction of true, biblical, authentic 
genuine discipleship. So from these two passages together, we're going to draw out two points from the first passage that tell us what biblical discipleship isn't, and then we'll pull out six truths from the second passage that tell us what true, authentic biblical discipleship is. And here's the whole point. We need to have a biblical definition of discipleship to help us, number one, think through how we as a church are going to go about fulfilling the Great Commission. Our definition of a discipleship affects the way we do Awana. It affects the way we do Vacation Bible School. It affects the way we do our connect groups. It affects the focus of the preaching on Sunday morning. It affects the way we do mission trips in Cuba and Haiti and Nicaragua and other places. It affects what kind of missionaries that we support. It affects everything related to the Great Commission. I'm not sure that there's a more important topic when we're talking about the purpose and the calling of the church than getting a true and accurate and authentic biblical definition of a disciple. So that's what we're going to try to draw from this. But there's a second reason. I think God would have us to consider whether we, in fact our authentic biblical disciples in light of the definition we're going to draw forth from this text. So that's where we're headed. All right, the first two observations I'm going to draw from verses 7 to 12 from the negative depiction of an inauthentic discipleship. All right, the first observation is this. Biblical disciples are not made by the power of miraculous signs. Miracles do not bring conversion. Miracles do not make disciples. Now that's a pretty astounding claim if the majority of your Christian influence is coming from places like Daystar and TBN. But it's true. Miracles don't make disciples. Mark specifically states that this great crowd that followed Jesus did so, verses 7 and 8, because they heard all that he was doing. Now, this point is more implicit in Mark's gospel than it is, say, in John's gospel. There's a very interesting theme that runs throughout John's gospel of inauthentic discipleship, and it creeps up at a number of different places. But probably the clearest place of all is in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and then he sends them away, and he sends his disciples across the sea in a boat. He goes up on the mountain to pray. He comes down, he walks across the sea, and then he comes to the other side to Capernaum, and he's in the synagogue, and the huge crowd from the day before follows him around to Capernaum to the synagogue where he's teaching. And Jesus says this when the massive crowd begins to approach him. Jesus responds in this way. Verse 26 of John 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. In other words, for John, signs mean signs that I am the Messiah. You're not seeking me because you're convinced that I am he who was to come but because you ate your fill of loaves, you were satisfied with a miracle. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, 
God the Father had set his seal. If miracles were able to bring this huge crowd of followers, in fact, in John 6, John calls them disciples, if miracles were able to bring them to true conversion, then when the end of the day comes and the end of John chapter 6 arrives, they wouldn't all forsake him because they don't like what he's saying. Miracles do not make Christians. They do not make disciples. By the end of the day, only 12 are left where thousands upon thousands began. In John chapter 2, John records, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Uh Uh-oh. Their faith is grounded in his works. They're grounded in the miraculous power which he wields. But for Jesus, that's not sufficient faith. Because it says Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And we could go on and on and on throughout John's gospel. According to Jesus then, miraculous signs are not a sufficient ground for saving faith and they are not a sufficient basis for biblical discipleship. The only sufficient ground for saving faith and the only sufficient basis for biblical discipleship is the Word of Christ. That's why on that day in John 6, after the crowds departed saying, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus turns around to the twelve and he says, are you going to go away too? And Peter responds on behalf of the twelve and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Their faith was rooted in what he said and who he was, not in what he could do. The same can be observed in Mark's Gospel. The desire of these masses is inherently selfish. They want the benefit that Jesus' miraculous power can provide. And as long as Jesus' Putting on a show, as long as he is performing miracles, they'll continue to flock to him. But when he stops, when he preaches about the kingdom of God, when he identifies their sins and proclaims their need of repentance, that's when the crowds depart because they're not interested in repentance and they see no need of a savior. What they need is a physician. They need a miracle worker. But that's not why Jesus came. Remember back to Mark chapter 1, Jesus tells us exactly why he came. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 1, 38. He came to preach repentance and faith. He came to forgive sins. And he came to die as a ransom for sinners and rise again on the third day. It's not uncommon to hear people today, and I guess in every age, profess to be Christians, but when you track down to the beginning, okay, why did you decide to follow Christ? And they'll begin to report to you there's something that they perceive that God did or will do for them. They were in a tough spot. They prayed. God delivered him, and so in return, they decided to follow him. Their marriage was on the rocks. They began going to church and things began to get better. So now they're followers of Jesus. 
They were broke and unemployed. They prayed for a job. Soon a job came to them, and so now they believe in Jesus. They were sick. They prayed for healing, and healing came. So now they're disciples of Jesus. None of those things form a sufficient ground for saving faith, and none of those are provide a sufficient basis for biblical discipleship because what happens when the next crisis comes along and God doesn't deliver you? I mean, if you follow Jesus because he delivered you back in the day, what happens when he decides, no, I'm going to let you go through this tribulation? What happens when you start going to church and your marriage doesn't improve, but rather ends in divorce? What happens when the new job doesn't come and your home actually goes into foreclosure? What happens if the disease that you pray for God to heal isn't healed and rather becomes worse and becomes terminal? What will become of their faith if it is grounded in miracles that they hope God will perform for them? One of the most heartbreaking moments of my pastoral ministry happened in exactly this way, where a guy from a different church, before I came here, when a guy started coming to church and professed faith in Christ, he fooled even me because I baptized him, and he did so out of a hope of trying to turn over a new leaf so that his wife wouldn't leave him. Two months later, she leaves. What does he say? Prayer doesn't work. Jesus doesn't care. I'm out. His faith was grounded in a miracle that he hoped God would perform in his marriage. And when God didn't show off, he bailed. There is only one sufficient ground for saving faith. There is only one sufficient basis for biblical discipleship, and that is the word of Christ, which is the gospel. The gospel which declares that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became man, became a substitute for sinners, died on the cross to atone for our sins, and rose again to give us new and eternal life. So check yourself, examine yourselves. Why did you come to Jesus? Because if it wasn't for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, you came for the wrong reason and you're not actually a disciple. Biblical disciples are made not on the power of signs and wonders, but by the word of the gospel preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why a church that is serious about making disciples, like I hope we are, will put the gospel front and center in everything that we do. Because it's the only means by which God makes disciples. Observation number two. Again, from verses 12 to 17, biblical disciples are not made in great crowds. I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking on the phone with a former missionary uh, in Africa who was lamenting mass evangelism in Africa, saying it doesn't work. And everybody thinks that it works. They gather this large crowd, they get thousands of people to profess faith in Jesus, and then they leave, they go away, they go home, they come back to the States, they report that we've made thousands of new believers, and then the next group comes in, doesn't matter where they are, and the same people make the same professions. 
When I was studying this passage and I was trying to draw from it a unifying theme that held it all together, I was struck by the juxtaposition of these two passages, verses 7 to 12 and verses 13 to 19, in comparison of the size and the scope of the crowds. In the first passage, which is clearly negative in its tone, a great crowd clamors for Jesus with such ferocity and mob mentality that they nearly crush him. They don't care about Jesus. They do not love Jesus. They are there to use Jesus. But the second passage, which is clearly positive in its tone, doesn't have great crowds. It focuses upon 12. I think that's instructive. 12 men whom Jesus calls to himself, 12 men with whom he spends an enormous amount of time pouring into them, teaching them, molding them, admonishing them, exhorting them, praying for them, training them. And I think that's the contrast that Mark intends to draw by putting these two passages back to back. The contrast between the great crowd with with which Jesus has a tenuous and fragile relationship and the twelve with whom he is intimately acquainted and through whom he turned the world upside down. I don't think biblical disciples are made in great crowds. They're made in small groups and one-on-one relationships, and they're not made in a moment. They're made by pouring an enormous amount of time into it. The truth is that biblical disciples are made in intimate relationships. Now, it is possible that converts can be made in large crowds. It is possible that real Converts can be made in large crowds. But if discipleship encompasses teaching all that I have commanded you as well as making converts, then by its very definition, discipleship cannot, you cannot make disciples in mass evangelism. If responding to an invitation at a Billy Graham crusade or a Winter Jam music festival is all someone knows of Christianity, they're not a disciple. They're a decision maker. Now, I disciple you week week by week from this pulpit. That's what we're doing right now. I'm making disciples. Of whom? You're like looking around up. I've been a Christian for years. I'm making disciples of you. But what I do here behind the pulpit on a Sunday morning is not sufficient for your discipleship. You need individuals who know you, who know what you're going through, who will hold you accountable, who will admonish you according to the Word, who will pray for you, who will check up on you during the week, who will come get you when you go astray and will bring you back in love and in grace and in truth. Discipleship, in other words, cannot happen in anonymity. It's impossible. It happens in relationship. It happens first in relationship with your pastors, but not only. It happens in relationship with your connect group. It happens in relationship with other members of this church with whom you gather to read the Bible or to pray or to talk about life and the Lord and to encourage one another and to exhort and to grow together. So if we would be a church that is serious about making and being authentic disciples, we need to be a church that is serious about 
intimate, godly, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, word-saturated relationships. Examine yourself by this. Who knows you? I mean really knows you. If all you're doing is coming on a Sunday morning, slipping in after the music starts, leaving after, before the music's over, sitting, there's nothing wrong with sitting in the back row, but sitting somewhere where, where you hope nobody will notice you and, and you're just one isolated individual sitting in the midst of other isolated individuals listening to the sermon and then leaving, you're not a biblical disciple. You need to stop dating this church and you need to come into covenant with us so that we can march together to Zion. So if you feel like you are stale and stalled in the Christian life, that that your, your, your Christian experience lacks conviction, maybe it's because no one is actually calling you to account for your sin. And you feel like it lacks repentance, maybe it's because no one is calling forth repentance from you. Could it be that you are trying to live the Christian life in anonymity when Jesus designed that it be lived in community? Now we turn to verses 13 to 19 and the appointing of the 12. Now before we actually begin uh, to draw implications out of these verses uh, and apply them to ourselves and to our church, I think one point needs to be established. The 12 disciples and their call is not a unique case that applies only to them. Sometimes people think that. I will freely admit that in their office as apostles, they are utterly unique in the history of the church. An apostle in the biblical sense of the word was a uniquely, specially appointed representative of Jesus Christ who was authorized by Christ to speak for Christ in the writing of Scripture, in the establishment of the church. Okay? I admit that. But, what we have here are men who were disciples before they were apostles. And their calling as disciples is no different than your calling or my calling as disciples. By God's special appointment and authorization, these apostles, these men as apostles, became the foundation of the new covenant church. As such, there is a sense in which their authority is unrepeatable, non-transferable, irrevocable. There has never been and there never will be apostles other than those whom Christ personally called, appointed, and gifted. But before they were apostles, they were disciples. They were ordinary men, no different than us. In other words, though their apostleship is unique, their discipleship is not. And so this morning, I'm going to deal with them as disciples and not as apostles. Every point about discipleship, which I'm going to make from their call, I could make from other texts throughout the New Testament. So I want you to go there with me. I want you to look at 13 to 19, and I want you to focus upon these 12, not in their special apostolic calling, but in their rather ordinary calling to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we note about these men is that they weren't made by other men. They were made disciples by the sovereign call of Christ. He went up on the mountain and he called to him, those whom he desired, 
and they came to him. There could be no stronger statement of the sovereignty of Christ in the choosing of those who would follow him than what we have here. And lest, lest we think that maybe this sovereign election and call pertain just to them as apostles, I will challenge you, even though we don't have time to do it here, I would challenge you to go home this afternoon, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, trace the word called and chosen throughout that passage, and see that Paul applies it to everyone who is in Christ. In other words, the determinative factor in whether or not a person believes the word of the cross, beholds in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the wisdom and the power of God, the determinative factor is whether or not they were chosen by Christ and called by Christ. And at the end of that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will find that God designed biblical discipleship to work this way to hinge solely and ultimately upon His sovereign grace and not upon our own will or our own striving, so that, 1 Corinthians 1.29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now why is this important to point out? What does it have to do with discipleship? What difference does the doctrine of election make in our everyday lives of following Christ? I suggest to you it makes us humble and reliant upon God's grace and strength, and it shows us that no matter we are, whether we're in Cuba or Haiti or here, we cannot manufacture disciples by artificial means. Jesus makes disciples and no one else. If he had not called us, we would not be following him, and if he does not call others, they won't come either. So if we would be a church that is serious and effective about making authentic disciples, whether here or on the mission field, we need to be clear about who exactly it is that makes them. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, John 15, 16. And Jesus spoke those not to the twelve as apostles, but to the twelve as disciples. Fourth, biblical disciples have fellowship with Christ. Mark says in verse 14, I love the way he puts it, he appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. In other words, the sum and substance of their discipleship was simply being with him. Discipleship is not primarily about what you do, it's about who you are and who you're with. Before discipleship is an action, it's a relationship. Before it's a commission, it is a friendship. He called the twelve to himself. He called them to be with them. He called them to know him and to walk with him and to talk with him and be taught by him and to have communion with him, to share meals with him. Now, we don't have Jesus with us in the flesh. We don't have the privilege of walking with him and talking with him in the same way that the disciples did, in the garden notwithstanding. So what does it mean for us to be with Christ now? What does it look like to have fellowship and communion with Jesus? Well, again, I'm going to punt to the Gospel of John because it's so helpful in this regard. Jesus says something quite interesting to his disciples in the upper room when he's preparing them for his departure. 
In John 15, 15, right before he tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, right before then he says this, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for. He's about to tell us why he calls us friends. For. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. What defines Christ's friendship with us is the Word of God. Being a friend of Jesus means that Jesus has revealed to us the will and the Word of the Father. That's how we have fellowship with the risen and exalted Christ now until He returns. We have fellowship with Him by His Word. Do you know that fellowship? where you open up his word and he communicates to you through the word, never apart from the word, through the word by the spirit, and you pour out your heart to him in prayer. You know what that is? That's called communication, and it's the absolute basic foundation of friendship. Are you friends with Jesus, and how can you be friends with Jesus if you don't talk to him or listen to him? Biblical disciples have fellowship with Christ by the Spirit, in the Word, and in prayer. Fifth, biblical disciples preach the Word of Christ. Jesus appointed to twelve so that they might be with Him and He might send them to preach. It's the Great Commission. This is how disciples are made. Jesus called the first twelve disciples personally. But ever since his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he calls all the rest of his disciples through the preaching of other disciples. And preaching is the task of every disciple, yes you. Because in the New Testament, preaching has both a formal and technical sense and an informal and non-technical sense. When you read the word preaching in the New Testament, very rarely, in fact, does it refer to what I'm doing this morning. Formal, technical exposition of the word in public before the gathered church. That is usually not what the New Testament means when it refers to preaching. You know what it means? It refers to just speaking the word of Christ in a variety of contexts, prayerfully and in the power of the Holy Spirit, with a friend over coffee who comes to you because she's having trouble in her marriage. Preach to her. Exhort her with the Word. Encourage her with the promises. It means when your neighbor comes over and he sees you reading this particular book and he says, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Or what do you think happens after you die? Preach to him. Exhort him with the word. When your child comes in one of those thousands of questions that they ask that that may come at, I don't know, inconvenient times, but are so important in the formation and the shaping of their worldview because they display that they're mulling this stuff over, you are preaching to your children when you answer their questions with the scriptures. Jesus said, That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what else is a biblical disciple but one whose heart is filled with Christ? This is an indispensable characteristic of all true disciples. You cannot be a true disciple and be silent. 
Just as an apple tree that does not produce apples is not actually an apple tree, and a peach tree that bears no peaches is not actually a peach tree. So a disciple who does not speak about Jesus is not actually a disciple. Six, biblical disciples have authority over the forces of evil. He appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. We'll have occasion at a later date to get into demon possession and and how to deal with them. Mark chapter 5, for instance. This morning, I just want you to soak in this truth that in Christ and only in Christ, you have been granted authority over the forces of evil. They cannot possess you. They cannot bring you ultimate harm. And through the Spirit and the Word, they must flee from you. You do not have ultimate authority over demons, as evidenced by Mark 9 when the disciples could not expel the demon from the man's son. But in Christ, mediated through the Word and the Spirit, you do have authority. So if, when, you encounter the demonic realm, do not engage it directly. Don't pull an exorcist on them. Else you'll get beaten up like the sons of Sceva in Acts 19. Don't engage it directly as if you were sovereign. The word of Christ and the spirit of Christ are your weapons of warfare which you must yield. And if you wield them, you will not be defeated. Seven, biblical disciples come from every sort of man. I think it's amazing the, the, the diversity of men represented in the list of disciples in this passage. And it reveals that Jesus evidently placed no intrinsic prequalifications upon those who would follow him. They didn't have to meet any specific criteria before they could become his disciples. The only thing that they needed was the one thing that they all had, which was the sovereign call of Christ. Just run through the list with me. Simon and Andrew were fishermen. So were James and John. James and John, in particular, were rather wealthy and were also possessed of thunderous personalities that caused them at one moment to grasp for prestige and at another moment to ask Jesus for permission to call down fire from heaven upon the Samaritans. Philip and Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel, seem to have been just run-of-the-mill faithful Israelites who were hoping for the coming Messiah. Although Nathaniel also possessed certain racial and economic prejudices that need to be sanctified out of him. You can read about that at the end of John 1. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, he said, when he heard that the Messiah had come from Nazareth? Matthew, or Levi, was a tax collector, which meant that he was greedy, traitorous, and despised. Thomas seems to have been something of a cynic and was pessimistic by nature, which you get not only from the I won't believe unless I press my hand in his, uh, in his hands and, and into his side, but also in John 11 when Jesus says, well, let's go back to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, well, I guess we'll just follow him and die with him. We don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus, except for the, he may have been the brother of Matthew. We don't know much about Thaddeus. Simon's nickname, the Zealot, suggests the possibility that he was actually part of an anti-Roman revolutionary group that existed in the first century known as the Zealots. He was an anarchist. 
And finally, Judas Iscariot, whom we'll deal with momentarily. So that begs the question, where can you find impetuous braggarts, power-hungry hotheads, racists, classists, extortionists, cynic skeptics, and revolutionary anarchists, among a thousand other undesirable character traits, all gathered together in one group? The church. To borrow a phrase from John MacArthur, these were 12 ordinary men from 12 ordinary walks of life. They were ordinary sinners, called by the sovereign Christ and sanctified by the sovereign Spirit, and they were the chosen instruments through which Jesus turned the world upside down and altered the course of human destiny. And he does the same thing today through ordinary people like you and me gathered into ordinary churches like this who have no other qualification than that we've been called by Christ and we found in him forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The outworking of this for our church and the cause of disciple making then is that if Jesus establishes no pre-qualifications for discipleship, then neither should we. The church is for all sorts of men and women, for all manner of redeemed sinners. Doesn't that get messy? Yes, it does. Isn't it difficult? It's very difficult. But isn't it glorious? Why? Because it magnifies the power of Christ's ineffable grace. By this will all men know you're my disciples if you have love for one another specifically those whom you would not otherwise love. So let's commit to a disciple-making strategy that reaches out for every sort of sinner. And yes, I mean every sort. Let's be a church where there is no qualification needed save the sovereign call of Christ. And let's be a church where we welcome in Christ even the worst of sinners because that magnifies the power of the gospel all the more. But I conclude with a warning. The last name on this list provides us with our last observation regarding biblical discipleship, which is that biblical disciples are those who persevere in the faith. They don't drop out. There is no exit ramp for true disciples. Look at the way Mark concludes the list of the twelve. He wants us to know something about Judas before Judas actually does the deed. And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Judas was part of the twelve, followed Jesus for three years, was sent out to preach the gospel of the kingdom and cast out demons and heal. And by the way, there's no implication that he didn't have the authority to do all these things or else it would have been obvious that there was Judas sticking out like a sore thumb. He's got no power. Judas stands as a warning to every disciple that external membership in the people of God is no substitute for true and authentic discipleship. Eventually, Judas's unbelief manifested itself in betrayal and he sold the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. This is why, as a church, we so often and so profoundly emphasize the necessity of perseverance. Because the task of discipleship is not complete until you die. That's why we spend as much time 
on senior adults who've been in the faith 30, 40, 50, 60 years as we do with new converts. Because we're still making them into disciples until like Wilbur Kirtner this morning at 4 o'clock, they get called home to glory. He's a disciple. And his discipleship is complete. Ours isn't. We're still being made. The task of disciple making is not complete until the church, as we will on Wednesday or Thursday, gathers at your funeral to commend you to the grace of God in whom you trusted. So let's summarize what we've learned this morning. Let's take these eight observations and let's craft them into a definition of biblical discipleship. Here it goes. I'll give it to you twice. A disciple is a redeemed sinner who has been sovereignly called by Christ into a living relationship with himself. Discipleship is founded upon the word of Christ. It is nourished through intimate Christ-centered relationships. It is reproduced in the lives of other redeemed sinners through the disciple-making ministry of a local church. And it is completed only when the disciple enters into glory. A disciple is a redeemed sinner who has been sovereignly called by Christ into a living relationship with himself. It is founded upon the word of Christ. It is nourished through intimate Christ-centered relationships. It is reproduced in the lives of other redeemed sinners through the disciple-making ministry of a local church. And it is complete only when the disciple enters into glory. I think this is what Jesus had in mind when he called his own disciples and then sent them out to go do the same. So with that definition in mind, now listen to your commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is when discipleship is done. Let's go and do likewise.